If you would um, just bow your head and close with, uh, pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, your word is living and active, and it speaks to us to inform us and teach us of the truth, but it also, um, it also brings life. It's also the vessel through which your spirit works in the hearts of human beings who you love and whom you sent your son to rescue. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and do that today, Lord, that you would light up our hearts, that these words would be words that speak to each of us, Lord, about the power of the gospel, For it is the power of God unto salvation to make us righteous through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips to speak what you've given me today and that you would anoint all of our hearts to be able to receive what you have to speak to us as individuals and as your body in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel reading this morning uh, is very short. Now, we fast forwarded in Mark uh, just for this week because of the nature of the service today. And so the gospel reading comes from Mark chapter 10 this morning, and I'm going to read that uh, and then share. It says, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. If you got a room full of, and and for all I know, this could be a room full of Anglicans, Catholics, Baptists, Evangelicals, non-denominational, Pentecostals, and hopefully it is, because that's a beautiful thing when the body comes together in unity. But if you brought up the topic of baptism, the volume in the room might slowly begin to increase as people shared what they felt about it and disagreed about it. It can be a controversial thing, especially the baptism of children or infants, because not every Christian affirms that. Um, I'm convinced that the skepticism about it results um, not so much from a deep theological and biblical search for the truth about it, but from people seeing baptism kind of abused as just a ceremony that people go through as a family tradition, never to show up at church again unless it's Christmas or Easter, with no plans whatsoever of discipling their children and raising them up to follow Jesus. Because if the person at the head of the home isn't, You can't make vows on behalf of a child to raise them in Jesus. And I think that's where the skepticism results. But what I want to do today is I want to to consider three things that I think are really important um, and should inform our view of baptism. And then what I want to do is briefly describe how the baptism of young children is actually a very beautiful and profound picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it relates to all of us and all of its saving power. So let me just, the first part is a little bit kind of teaching. So let me just run through these three things really quick. One, number one is the Jewish roots of our Christian faith need to be considered. Uh, The second thing is the evidence of the New Testament. And the third thing is the evidence of church history. Okay, so let me start with number one. It's undeniable, and we know this as Christians, that our faith, our Christian faith, is the fulfillment of, or the, uh, the consummation of, we might say, of the Jewish faith, of what began in Judaism. Jesus was a Jew, and we worship, in this room today as Christians, we worship the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, and of Moses, and the prophets. We worship the same God, right? And in the Old Testament, it's very clear that in the Old Testament, that babies and children were considered as part of the covenant family of God. 
Now, let me just stop and make an important reminder, and that is that all of God's covenants in the Old Testament and the New are covenants of grace. Some people think in the Old Testament, people had to earn their salvation. In the New, in the new it's given to them freely in Jesus. But it's all of God's grace. He calls Israel to himself and says, I'm making a covenant with you. I rescued you out of Egypt and I love you and I'm making a covenant with you and you need to abide by the terms of the covenant and you will walk in my blessing and my protection and my security. And we worship that same God today and his New Testament covenant in Christ's blood is also a covenant of grace that we are welcomed into. Now, I want you to think about Abraham for a second. When God first cut a covenant with Abraham and called him as the first kind of uh, the father of Israel out of a people, a pagan people, he did a, made a covenant with him and Abraham was an adult. He was Abram then. And God said, the mark of this covenant is circumcision. So you need to be circumcised. So Abraham was circumcised as a mark of God's grace in his life. And he did it as an adult responding of his own volition to God's grace. But however, his firstborn son, Isaac, and throughout all the other generations of Israel, the male child was circumcised on the eighth day as a baby who could not make a willful response of faith to God just yet or follow the demands of his covenant. Okay, but they still received the sign and seal of the covenant family of God. Okay, and that's what circumcision is. And God took this sign and seal so important that he said this in Genesis 17. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God takes these signs, what we might call sacraments in the Christian faith, these outward invisible signs of something, of signs of inward grace, we, God takes them very seriously, and he does stuff with them, and he considers them important and commands them. But what this whole thing implies, that the, the children receiving the sign of the covenant, the infants at eight days old, is that the child born into a believing family had the right to the mark of belonging even when they were not yet of an age where they could live out the demands of the covenant following God's commandments, okay? And if you read, church, or if you read Jewish history, you'll know that when Gentiles converted to Judaism, it was called Jew they did something called Jewish proselyte baptism, and the father would, they would take a ritual bath, a baptism, and the whole family would do it to, quote, wash away Gentile impurities. So even in all of the history of Judaism, if you converted to Judaism, you did, you did a baptism and you believed that God was washing away sins and impurities through that baptism, but it was for the whole family, okay? Now, some of you are at this point are asking, but what about personal faith? There has to be personal faith to be saved and to know God, and I would agree with you. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God, and that's a personal trust in God. And God cannot be pleased. He cannot, you cannot walk in relationship with him without that. Paul tells us it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the means by which we take hold of what God has given us in his covenant by dying for our sins on the cross. And let me just say this, children were absolutely and are still today always absolutely expected to lay hold of personal faith and obedience to the Lord when they come of age, and they are able to do that on their own, okay? Even if they have already been marked by the sign of the covenant. So I want you to think about it like this. This is a little illustration that I found helpful that I'm stealing from a fellow named Michael Green, but he said, if you think about a marriage ceremony, their priest marries the couple, the papers are signed, the certificates are signed, but maybe because of an illness, the wedding cannot be <clears throat> consummated for a delayed period of time, if you hear what I'm saying, okay? And so... 
The ceremony is done, though, and now they're married. They're in the covenant together, but there's still that consummation does need to happen at some point. And you could think of personal faith or having a born-again experience with Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit and having your heart regenerated. For a child who's been baptized, that's kind of like the consummation of the ceremony that they had when they were an infant, that they take hold of that faith. And so when mom and dad, when they're able to, they go to their bedroom and they hug in that special way that they hug and they consummate the wedding, then it's done now. But they didn't, what they didn't do was say, now that we can do that, let's redo the whole ceremony again because we, we need to witness again publicly that we really love each other right? They don't redo it, okay? So that's why I, I tell people who come to me and say, I was baptized as a baby. Should I get baptized again? And I said, no. What we're going to do instead is have you share your testimony and get confirmed and ask the Holy Spirit to come and refresh you and things like that, okay? Now, let's just jump into, jump into number two. But the point I do want to make about personal faith is that if you were baptized as a baby, and this may be some of you today, but you're not walking in a personal faith with Jesus and having put your trust in him, following him as Lord, you, you, you won't be able to ride into his kingdom on the coattails of your parents' faith or somebody else's faith. Because the Bible says that after death, all of us will stand before the Lord and give an account whether or not we received the gift of Jesus Christ personally for ourselves and followed him as Lord, and we're going to be called to account for that. So don't think, well, I got sprinkled by the priest when I was a baby, so I have fire insurance now and I won't go to hell. And the thing about this is, is that it's not just about judgment on the final day. It's that God wants you to walk with him in a personal friendship right here and right now. And sometimes there's things in our life that hinder that. There's bondages, there's addictions to sin, there is pride in us that doesn't want to admit that we need God. And yet God still, the Bible tells us, while all that's true of us and we're lost in our sins, it says, but because of his mercy and his great love for us, he makes us alive with Christ. And you take hold of that by personal faith. Okay, I think maybe, maybe some, some folks here today needed to hear that. But the Lord's extending his hand. He's extending his hand for you to take what was done for you in baptism as an infant and personalize it and walk in obedience and friendship with him. Here's number two, the evidence of the New Testament. We read in the book of Acts on several occasions that whole families were baptized when the father made a profession of faith or the mother. So in Acts chapter 16, Paul and some of his uh, compatriots are preaching the gospel in Philippi and a woman named Lydia tells us the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So she made a faith response as an adult. And then it says, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Okay. Now, I know if there's Baptists in the room, they're saying, well, everybody was an adult in the house and they first they made a confession of faith. Okay, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with this. Now, there's another instance in the same chapter where there's this distressed jailer because the prison is shaken and all the prisoners' chains come off by a miracle of God and the jailer is uh, very excited and anxious and he's going to fall on his own sword because he'd get in big trouble if his prisoners escape. And he says to Paul and Silas, he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responded to this jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Immediately, it tells us he and his whole household were baptized. Now, this is, the reason that this idea is hard for us to grasp is because in, a, in the modern world, I think this is one major reason, is that we are obsessed with the individual. We are obsessed with individualism. It's all about what I choose to wear, what I buy, where I go to university, where I do. And it's all about the I, the, the, the sovereign self. But that, 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 that kind of individualism that we experience today in modern society is unprecedented in, in history. 
and people and people for all of time have thought of the family as one functioning union, one functioning unit rather. And so the idea is that if the head of the family acted or made some significant decision, he did it on behalf of the entire family. So the father or the mother, if there was no father, was kind of a federal head or a representative of the family unit. Okay, and that's why children would have been baptized. So for a, for a Jewish man hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ preached, for him to make a decision to convert and believe in the Messiah, it would have been unthinkable that only he would get baptized and not his family. Because now he's going to lead his family as the head of his family in the Christian faith to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. So it would have been unthinkable for them to think that, that the children wouldn't have been baptized too. Now there's another scripture where this is, um, comes up in a different topic, and St. Paul is talking about marriage and he says something really mysterious that I never understood. Um, I, I didn't understand for the longest time. But he says this, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, meaning a wife who has become a Christian. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Then he says this, Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. They're set apart to the Lord. So something, Paul believed that something happened when a mother or father put their faith in Jesus, that somehow the anointing and the blessing of God rested on that home. Now, it didn't mean it was an automatic ticket that everybody's going to heaven no matter how they live, because the other people in the home will have to make a decision to live in alignment with God's purposes and God's commandments and, and have a relationship with God, right? But it, 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 something happens where God says, this family now belongs to me and is a part of my covenant. Because though the one at the, at the head of the family has believed. Peter, when he was preaching at Pentecost and the people were convicted of their sin, they said, what should we do? They were cut to the heart. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name, now there was probably children there, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the promise is for you and for your children. So all members of the family have a right to the covenant status until they make up their own minds, whether or not they're going to be faithful to God. Here's the third thing, the testimony of church history. So you might think, well, what about, didn't, didn't, hasn't it always been believer's baptism from the earliest days of the church? I don't know about this biblical evidence. Well, I, I want to just cite a few things here that come from the first few centuries of the church, first, second, third, fourth. So one church father, Irenaeus, writing in about uh, AD 189, so second century, he says this, and I, I love this. This is just so beautiful. He says, Jesus came to save all through himself. All, I say, who through him are reborn in God. Infants and children and youths and old men. Therefore, he passed through every age, becoming an infant for infants, sanctifying infants, a child for children, sanctifying those who are of that age, so that he might be the perfect teacher in all things, perfect not only in respect to the setting forth of truth, perfect also in respect to relative age. I love that. It's a little theological, fun roller coaster, but... Now, the, the next thing is, uh, is, is comes from a document that we have access to called Apostolic Tradition, which was written by a fellow named Hippolytus. Anybody name their kids Hippolytus in the modern world? Probably not. Um, it'd be cool if you did. But this is written in about 215 AD, and this was what the Apostolic Tradition was. It was a standard um, writing that gave guidance to Christian churches in the, in the early 3rd century, and it was followed widely across Christian churches. And I'm quoting from it now. First... He's talking about baptism. First, you should baptize the little ones. All who can speak for themselves should speak. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Okay. 
Then Origen, later in the third century, said, for this reason, the church received from the apostles the tradition of baptizing children too. Okay? Then now, one more, one more. Early 5th century, 408, St. Augustine, one of the greatest well-known saints of all time, St. Augustine of Hippo in North Africa, he said, the custom of mother church in baptizing infants is certainly not to be scorned, nor is it to be regarded in any way as superfluous, nor is it to be believed that its tradition is anything except apostolic, meaning it comes, it's handed to us from the apostles. So that the early church did not believe that you could or, or maybe would want to consider baptizing your infants. It would have been unthinkable for them that the whole family wouldn't be baptized. Okay? And then, you know, of course, there's throughout the rest of church history, a majority of Christians worldwide for all of church history have baptized infants and babies. So you have your three biggest global church bodies, Roman Catholics, Orthodox, and Anglicans, of which we're, we're a part of that third one, have always baptized children. But then you get to the Protestant Reformation and the, and the groups that come out of the magisterial reformers like Martin Luther and Calvin being Lutherans and Presbyterians. They have always held to infant uh, baptism as well. Okay, So I would just say that that's a majority of Christians throughout church history that have done that. Okay, but I, I, so I think that evi all that evidence builds up. But here's where I want to go with this, because this isn't just a, a teaching on baptism. What I want to talk about is the baptism of a child as a picture of something, a picture of something really powerful that we all need to see. In Mark 10 today, we heard Jesus speak this simple truth. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So children in the ancient world, they were kind of seen as nuisances and annoyances, and none of us parents today ever think that about our children. But the apostles were like, children, you don't have anything to offer to Jesus. You're just these little needy creatures. Go away, go away, don't bother the master. And Jesus rebuked his apostles. He rebuked his disciples and said, do not hinder them. Let them come to me. And then he gave this lesson to all the people standing around. He said, do not hinder the children for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Hmm. The kingdom of God, the realm of God's reign and his saving power, it belongs to children. But notice that he says to such as these. So he's not merely implying that children can participate in the kingdom of God, though that is obviously implied, but it's, he's saying that the means by which everyone and anyone must enter God's kingdom is to become like a child. Well, what does that mean? Goo goo, gaga, daddy pot? No. What it means is that children, see, they have a posture of trusting dependence. Everybody say that with me. Trusting dependence. That's faith. When, my, when I go to the community uh, pool with my kids and we're swimming around in the deep and they can swim, but they're short and six and four years old, they know that if they start struggling, all they have to do is put out a hand and I'm going to be right there. There's a trusting dependence. They don't even think dad's going to let me drown, right? Because they have faith. They have faith. And children, they don't, they don't say, when it comes to God's salvation and God's saving power and his forgiving power, children don't say, well, wait, 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 wait. What do I need to do to deserve it? What do I need to do to earn it? Tell me what I need to do. And that's, that's the, the natural posture of the human heart often, and I experience this often as somebody sharing the gospel with people who are not Christians that I hear, and it's, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get ready for this? I don't feel like I'm worthy of this. I don't deserve this. And I tell them, you're right, you don't. None of us do. The Bible says that, that what we deserved was God's condemnation, but while we were bound in our bondages, 
He came down in love to rescue us. He came in the person of his son to show us what he was really like as a father who was willing to rescue children who had gone astray and and squandered their inheritance, their lives. And yet he would run to them and throw his hands around them with compassion and say, I want to forgive you and celebrate you and bring you into my kingdom and into my family. But what it takes is trusting dependence that we come and we fall at the feet of Jesus and say, I can't do this. I can't clean myself up. I can't get unaddicted to this thing. I can't turn from this immorality that I'm constantly drawn to. I can't stop looking at that. I can't stop seeing her. I can't stop seeing him. I can't do this. That's the perfect place for you to run to the feet of Jesus and say, I fall mercy. I fall mercy. I want to read something to you that I uh, read when I was baptized um, many years ago. And this was from Malcolm Muggeridge, who um, was a BBC journalist and a longtime unbeliever who ended up becoming a converted Christian. But he said this about his own, um, he, his own conversion to Jesus and God seeking him out. And I, have, I sometimes have trouble getting through this because it's been so important to me because I read it at my baptism 13 years ago. But he said this, however far and fast I've run, Still over my shoulder, I'd catch a glimpse of you on the horizon and then run faster and farther than ever, thinking triumphantly, now I have escaped. But no, there you were, coming after me. Very well, I'd decide, if I can't get away by running, I'll shut my eyes and ears and not see or hear you. How many of us do this to God? No good, he says, one sees and hears you, not with the eyes and ears, but inwardly with the soul, whose faculties never can be quite put out however gorged, stupefied, and ego-inflated we may become. Now I can flee no further. I fall. Mercy. His life was surrendered to Jesus. And there's, there's, there's people all over the world, in our cities, in our families, in our neighborhoods, maybe in this room today, who could hear that and think, I'm the one running from His grace from his transforming power. I'm the one who keeps trying to do this and close my eyes, but there's something inward in me crying out like a helpless child. I need help. And the Bible says this. This is the good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as we baptize these children today, what you're seeing is a picture of a helpless child who can't do anything for themselves. They need it done for them. And that's a picture of salvation. And God is going to do things with these children and through their families over the years. And this water is going to be blessed and sanctified and he's going to work through it. But it's a picture that all of us need to see and to be reminded of. That I come to God with nothing except my surrender and my trust in what Jesus did for me. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that... um, that we can be reminded in so many ways, and especially through the sacraments that you've given us of communion and baptism, that we don't do anything to earn our salvation. There's nothing that can bring us out of our own darkness except the saving light of Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you that though we are sinners who deserve your judgment and your condemnation, your mercy is being extended to us. Your mercy and your grace are being extended to us because your love is a powerful force that you would rather exercise than your judgment. And so, Father, I thank you that you want to relate to each one of us, not as a judge, but as a father. And the only way to do that is to reach out and take hold of Jesus, who paid the price for our sins, 
who paid the penalty, who bore your wrath on the cross against sin so that we can be made clean and pure and walk back into your presence redeemed and renewed and set free. So I pray that over this group today, that as we baptize these children, that people in this room who need to be reminded of that, who need to see that powerfully, Lord, that you would touch hearts in this room today and that you would bring forth that cry from the inner person, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you, Lord Holy Spirit. You can do all things. We love you. We thank you, Lord. And now as we, re we respond to this word in song, I pray that you would move among us powerfully in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just stand and do the only appropriate thing and to respond to the Lord with worship. <laughs>